The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations, by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource, by Black & Veatch, building a world of difference, by Ziptility, the only app utility crews need to find, fix, and manage infrastructure assets from the field, by Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions, and by Xylem, let's solve water. This is session 173. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Hope this finds you safe and healthy and I hope you're having as good a summer as you can have given the circumstances we all find ourselves in. Today, Catherine Sorensen, who heads up Phoenix Water, uh, joins us, and Catherine is awesome and provides us with insights into Phoenix Water's water equity programs, including water rate design issues, and she outlines a unique water sharing and storage arrangement uh, between Phoenix and Tucson. You know, lots of us talk about uh, thinking outside the box, but I think Phoenix and Tucson have demonstrated thinking outside the box and implemented a, v- a very innovative water storage sharing and solution um, uh, idea. So I think that that's, you're really going to find this interesting. Uh, but before we get to Catherine's great interview, we do have our Bluefield on Tap episode with Reese Tisdale of Bluefield Research. Reese is going to discuss uh, some of the uh, latest market findings uh, from its municipal cor- quarterly report. Uh, so th- that's going to be a, a really interesting uh, and a unique uh, offering some unique insights into the uh, water markets. Well, a uh, hearty thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, and Xylem. And I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and let them know how much you appreciate their leadership in the water industry through the sponsorship. You really would be surprised how far a simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of the water industry, education, and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn, whatever other podcast directory you're listening on. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. It just helps get uh, help gets us noticed and will help others find out about the podcast. Now it's time for this month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. Here we go. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefield on Tap segment. How you doing? we talked baseball hadn't started we're about to finish up hockey season it's mid-august so this is gonna be it's uh times are different that's for sure but uh things are good yeah yeah well baseball season started we we'll, we don't know how long it's gonna go the uh you know what the marlins and phillies are in quarantine st louis just kind of got hit i heard um uh and it couldn't happen at a worse time because the mariners were just coming on well for what it's worth if if, if it really goes south the Boston Red Sox stink, and uh, it's a good year to you know call it quits early. <laughs> good deal. Well, uh, what are you guys seeing out in the uh, the market these days? What are you guys paying attention to? Yeah, I mean it's been incredibly busy for us, partly because there's so much uncertainty. But one thing that um, it's kind of that time of the year, at least on a quarterly basis, we are about to put out our U.S. and Canada municipal quarterly uh, report. You know, we provide this to clients and. 
It kind of came at a time where, if, if you didn't see it, for all the listeners out there, the you know GDP, I think it was down 30, almost 33%. Yeah, biggest drop uh, on record. Yeah, which, you know, I think the what ha- in infrastructure, water infrastructure as a whole, or just the economy as a whole, you know, everybody's kind of been waiting to see what the data is going to tell us, which is, you know, I think we've seen it happening, but so that's bad. So what does that mean for the water sector? I think what we are also, at the same time, we're starting to get the reports in on everything from housing permits, utility, employment, and sort of recovery there, as well as construction. Uh, so it's interesting to see the dips in April and then the rebound in uh, in May, June, and now as we're in July. So we're getting some of that data. Yeah. Anything catching your eye uh, that's that's coming out of that data? What wh- What is noteworthy? Well, you know, I feel like some of this might be obvious, but at least putting some numbers to it all. I think the housing permits has been um, pretty interesting to see, you know, given the, what happened in the last recession is that, you know, the housing market just completely collapsed and as well as the financial sector. But this time around, there was a big dip in housing permits in April. And then they basically, they're still up for the first half. Of, you know, they're up one and a half percent in the first half of 2020 versus last year. So I think there's been pent up to demand is partly seasonal. So that's a bit, why does that matter? Because, you know, when new houses are built, um, now, these are permits, so they're an indicator of, of upcoming start, should I say, so to be clear. But new pipes, new, you know, could be meters installed of the home. So there's just new capacity demand on water, wastewater systems. So that's an important indicator. And obviously, the biggest change, well, obviously is one way to put it, but the Northeast is up 164%. Um, from where it was in April. So it is completely rebounded. And that makes sense given that in March, April, May, the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts were just getting crushed. And now they've kind of lo- they've come out of lockdown. Things have opened up. There's the we move into the summertime, which is obviously a good time to build in the Northeast. So what we're going to start seeing, I suspect, is some slowdowns in the at least through the data and what's happening in the southern states you know florida texas um arizona new mexico and then california as well so it's interesting to see what's happening there and then you know construction has rebounded it's up four and a half percent so once again another indicator on the other hand we're looking at the quarterly reports from companies and they are down it's a bit of a mixed message but i'd say as a whole have we got did is the nadir if you want to call it that in april is that behind us is it going to be worse ahead that's what we're looking for yeah what what do you think about uh, or what's your your data showing for actual utilities in terms of their revenue collections uh, because there was there's all this fear that you know as the economy went south people were going to be unable to pay their bills and the the utilities were really going to get hurt is there any indications on that that side of the the uh, the ledger yeah, I think that's um, so revenues, which, you know, obviously are feed in mostly to particularly for small systems feed into the operating budgets um, and really important. There are a couple of things to think about. They were down, so they definitely declined. And we're seeing declines as, you know, 20 to 30 percent in some cases. And it was immediate. Um, and then at the same time, you know, because also a lot of um, states and localities, they were putting in uh, moratoriums on shutoffs. So 
people couldn't be shut off. So therefore, you know, there's only so much that could be done. What was what's another key fact to think about there, and I may have mentioned this before with you, and that is there's been such a shift in demand. So for instance, if you're in the Boston area, if you did the downtown area has been, you know, Boston water and sewer has been hit hard on a revenue basis because of a lot of it is, you know, the financial um, district downtown, it's empty. That demand has shifted out to the suburbs. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, actually suburban uh, water demand increase. And so revenues may have dropped 10% in the city of Boston, whereas in Acton, they go up 15% um, just because people are there all day and they're working out of home. So that's still playing out, but I'm concerned about the revenues um, also going forward. One thing to look out for is the role of unemployment in these, um, I, we're calling it stimulus. It feels like more like emergency management right now, but <laughs> these checks to... Um, you know, as long as people are getting some funding, they're more likely to pay their bills. If that dries up, it's probably going to be a different matter. I mean, water, I think people expect it to happen and there may be pushback. Um, you know, moratoriums are still in place in some cases, starting to loosen up a little bit, but largely still in place. Yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of the, uh, the the users not being able to pay their bills or maybe not the, the so the the clients i've spoken with they aren't they're they're very compassionate about the folks who are having serious trouble but there is a set of customers out there which which some of my clients have termed frequent flyers that have the funds to pay their bills they just choose not to and especially when the moratoriums came around they just said you know what we're not paying our bill because the governor said we didn't have to um i mean yeah, I mean, don't we all have friends we go to dinner with and they make more money than us and they still don't want to pay the bill? <laughs> In all fairness, at least split a 50-50 and pay their share. It's like, what is going on with you? So, yeah, yeah I think they're always going to be um, people like that. But what is it? It'll be interesting to see what a lot of things are accelerating. You know, we've talked a little bit about digital acceleration, but is there, will there be an acceleration going forward of, um, you know, uh, I guess solutions or our billing systems, how customers are billed and taking, you know, using different strategies to collect money. I think um, there are different ways to do that. We've seen in places like, you know, Philly and elsewhere where it's even income based. Um, so that's really fascinating to watch. And maybe there'll be changes going forward because if this thing does draw out and it, all numbers show that employment never recovers as quickly as it goes down. Um, at least over the long term in aggregate, then this is going to be um, something that's going to be discussed uh, uh, across the country. And like I said, the revenues from bills really impact the smaller to medium-sized systems. The larger ones, they're, they're a bit more sophisticated financially. They have access to different sources of capital, whether it be bond markets, uh, could be, you know, grants, state revolving funds, WIFIA. So they're more likely to take advantage of that where the smaller and medium ones are not, uh, are, are less likely to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, Reese, great talk with you. Uh, great to catch up and we'll, uh, we'll talk with you next month. Fantastic. And, uh, look forward to, uh, look forward to it. It'll be, uh, We'll be in September at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yikes. All right. Hey, take care, Reese. We'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Uh-huh, bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. 
Now it's on to our feature interview with Catherine Sorensen. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Catherine, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on today. Uh, how are you doing out there in Phoenix? Uh, we're doing great. Uh, it's it's pretty warm this time of year. <laughs> uh, we're having a bit of a struggle with uh, COVID-19, but our operations are steady and we are doing well. well that's all. That's terrific to hear. Uh, you know, for those who do not, uh, who aren't familiar with you with um, Phoenix Water, can you give us a little background about yourself and how you got interested in water? Sure. So I'm uh, from here. I'm from uh, Tempe, Arizona. And I think um, one of the things that you learn growing up in the desert is that water is incredibly important and valuable. And um, I became interested in the economics of water resources, um, the idea of how we allocate water, who gets it, who doesn't, and uh, studied it both in college and graduate school, and then launched a career in it. So I... um, I don't know. I guess I would say I have just been all in from an early age. <laughs> That's terrific to hear. You know, I uh, whenever we go to to the Phoenix area, we always stop at Ike's down in Tempe. Um, just love their sandwiches, and uh, it's a it's a great spot. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, in terms of what we're going to talk about today, let's talk a little about. Um, water equity and what that means to Phoenix Water, because I know you've got a program. Uh, in place there. And I just would like to, to hear how Phoenix does water equity. So, you know, water equity is in general terms about ensuring broad access to water and wastewater services and making sure that the community um, benefits from and participates in uh, the functioning of the water and wastewater utilities as well. Um, and then, of course, we also water equity also has to do with uh, making sure that we're giving back to the community, um, that it's a, a, a strong mutual relationship between us and our customers, um, that we're doing things in their best interests. So um, for us, water equity is an incredibly important topic. And as you can imagine, it's, a, it's also a difficult one. Um, the idea of uh, how much we pay for water who should pay, who shouldn't, under what circumstances, how much should they pay? Those are, those are really difficult questions. And uh, we asked our, our Citizens Water Advisory Committee to take up the issue of water equity about a year ago. And uh, they were happy to do that. We've uh, gone through um, a lot of analytics and, and research with them, a lot of presentations. They're very patient with us. And I'm happy to say that uh, we did finalize, the Citizen uh, Committee did finalize some recommendations. We really tasked them to look at how affordable is our water and affordable for whom? Um, Are there ways that we could ensure broader access to water and sewer services? And what more can we be doing in the community to, to build our relationship? So we really challenged them. Um, and we dove a lot into the affordability of water, which is just a huge topic across the entire industry. Um, and what we found is that, you know, the city of Phoenix has a a really unique rate structure for its water. And I would love to take credit for it, but, uh, it's actually, it was implemented back in the early nineties 
uh, when I was still in college. So I, I have nothing to do with this, but I'm going to brag about it anyway. <laughs> uh, so the city of Phoenix basically charges the same amount per unit of water uh, across all customer classes. So whether you are a small business, a large manufacturing company, uh, a single family resident, a multifamily um, apartment complex, everyone pays the same per unit. And then uh, we charge more for water in the summer. And that is uh, a conservation measure. Uh, so instead of having um, mandates about water use, we use price signals. We say, you know what, customers, if you guys want to have a nice lush lawn out here in the middle of the desert, you can do that. But we're going to charge you more for water in the summer, and it's going to be really, really expensive to do it. Um, but then what we also do in terms of affordability is we have a very, very low fixed charge, fixed monthly charge. Uh, it's on the order of about $4.50 uh, for your typical single family residential customer. That's very low in the industry. Uh, and that helps make sure that people can access our services. And then within that fixed charge, uh, we actually include that is uh, basically enough to get by for um, normal household uses, drinking, cleaning, cooking, washing. So when you combine all of those um, aspects of our, our water rates, we have uh, water rates that are affordable, that allow broad access, but also encourage conservation. Sure. Really cool. Yes, it's it sounds like you know you cut out for just a second there where you were talking about the amount of uh, the the volume of usage that comes with the fixed charge. What what level of usage comes with that fixed charge? So uh, it's on in the so it differs uh, winter and summer, uh, but it is on the order of five thousand gallons per month. Okay. Okay, so it's it's really it sounds like it's almost kind of a, uh, a modified lifeline rate. Uh, for residential users, right? Exactly. That, that you keep that keep it low, and that helps with the affordability because, I mean, five thousand gallons is actually quite quite uh, healthy. I I think for um, it absolutely it is. It's it's certainly adequate for uh, at least basic needs. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, th well, that's terrific. So that that rate structure has gone into effect in the early '90s. You said. Uh, and you've, you've, you've kept it. I've noticed there's a trend in the industry towards higher fixed charges because of the variability of use and things like that. How, has, and I'm just kind of curious what you have experienced uh, since you've, you've now have uh, Phoenix Water has over 25 years of um, experience with this type of rate structure. I mean, do, do you see significant fluctuations in usage because of the, uh, the, the rate structure, you think? We, like other utilities across the country, we've seen a very steady decline in per capita usage um, as appliances become more water efficient, industries become more water efficient, um, you know, people become more aware of the importance of conservation. Um, our per capita rates have actually fallen 40% uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, and I think that's very typical for the industry. Here in Phoenix, um, water use uh, mostly fluctuates based on weather. You can imagine, uh, you know, we are the monopoly provider of water. 
for the entire city of Phoenix. When it's hot and dry, you know, people need more water. Um, and so really, um, we see variability, but it has more to do with, with weather. Um, and we have not, we've been able to maintain financial stability over that period of time, um, even though we have a low fixed charge. And so, and I, again, I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that when it's hot and dry, you know, our, our revenues are going to be stable and it's pretty much always hot and dry in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, do you see significant residential use above 5,000 gallons? I mean, that, that starts to get certainly, into the, we, yeah. yeah, certainly. Um, we have, you can imagine, we have a wide um, variability in uh, our customers. Um, but for the most part, uh, consumption has declined. We, about 40% of our customers um, basically fall within the allowance um, on a monthly basis, uh, okay. at least once in a year. So consumption tends to be pretty low, but sure, we have our outliers, right? Yeah. We, we've got people who are very determined to have very lush land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, it would be helpful to to kind of, I, I think, understand what the makeup of your customers are. So can you tell us a little about the Phoenix water system? Because I think a lot of utilities are probably out there saying, well, there's no way we could uh, have a fixed monthly charge of less than $5 a month. I mean, so so what kind of customer base is supporting that rate structure? You know, um, really, one of the reasons why we're able to maintain such a low fixed monthly charge really has to do with economies of scale. It's just, it's an enormous utility. It's one of the largest in the country. We serve about 1.6 million people. We serve the entire city of Phoenix and then about half of the town of Paradise Valley. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we are predominantly uh, single family residential customers, um, but we have a very diverse industrial and commercial base. So our, our revenues do tend to be stable and fluctuate mostly just again, based on weather. Okay, okay. So, yeah, um, and we also serve um, on the wastewater side, um, we provide collection services for the entire city and for parts of Paradise Valley. And then we actually provide treatment services for about two and a half million people across the city of Phoenix, Tempe, Mesa, Glendale, and Scottsdale as well. I mean, that's really interesting. Now, um, I know, have, have you started to get into, and I, I know this was probably not on the, on the radar for you coming into this interview, but, uh, have, have you looked at kind of, uh, recycling water and things like that. Do you recycle water? Because obviously uh, you're in the desert, right? So every drop of water, you don't want to waste any, right? So can you talk a little about your source of supply issues and, and water use, water reuse and recycling? Oh, absolutely. So um, yes, water in the desert is precious. And so we have been reclaiming and reusing our wastewater for more than 40 years. Um, the, the bulk of it, uh, most of it goes to the um, Palo Verde nuclear power plant, which is west of Phoenix, and it's used for cooling purposes there. That's a really nexus uh, between water and energy. The Palo Verde nuclear power plant is the only power, the only nuclear plant in the world that is not located on a major body of water. And it's out here in the middle of the desert because of the availability of our reclaimed water. So. 
That's super interesting. And then um, another large chunk of our reclaimed water is actually exchanged uh, with a local Indian community, the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community through a water right settlement. Um, so we, on a two to three ratio. So we give them about 30,000 acre feet of reclaimed water and receive about 20,000 acre feet of Salt and Birdie River water that we then use in our system. So um, we've, uh, for many, many decades, have been finding innovative ways to uh, reuse our reclaimed water. Yeah, and and is is there any angle there that kind of uh, connects that up with water affordability and water equity, or uh, am I am I reaching here by by trying to make a connection in that in that space? No, I I think there is a connection because you know fundamentally, if we don't plan well, if we don't continue to innovate and ensure um, reliable water deliveries out here in the middle of the desert then we fail at water equity as well. Um, water equity is about ensuring broad access to water and wastewater services, and not just today, but also tomorrow. So no, I, I think there is a really strong tie. And um, that is our core focus. Um, and that is why we've been able to engage in really methodical planning to ensure uh, reliable water deliveries, uh, no matter the circumstances. Terrific. Good. I'm, I'm glad I was on the right path there because sometimes I, I come up with these ideas in midstream and, and you never know. Uh, how about uh, like customer assistance plans? Uh, does, does Phoenix Water have a, a CAP? We do. Um, and we are allowed to have one under state law, which is nice. I, I know that's not always the case um, across the country. Uh, we do. We fund a customer assistance program. It's called Project Assist. And our customers um, are also able to uh, participate in it and commit funds to it. We uh, fund it at about $600,000 a year, and our customers provide about another $100,000 a year. We're able to help uh, thousands of uh, low-income families um, avoid um, service interruptions and, and delinquencies. So that's been a, a really positive program for us. And then we also have um, a retrofit program uh, where uh, we target older homes uh, with low-income residents and go through and, and help them redo their plumbing so that they save water in the first place and lower their bills. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, I, I am kind of curious. I want to dig in on a little more on the, the customer assistance plan and how that is funded. Is that funded through kind of above-the-line revenues, essentially? You, you mentioned 100000 is contributed by customers. So there's a, there's a specific component in your rates where... Uh, some portion of like a, a penny off a monthly bill or something like that goes into the CAP is, did I hear that right? Or yes and no. So it's voluntary. So okay. um, our can choose to uh, participate in it and we receive about a hundred thousand dollars from them. And then, yeah, the, the uh, remainder, the $600,000 basically comes out of our enterprise funds out okay. of our, from our years as well. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So it, because I know that some some utilities try to use, for example, revenues from cell tower leases and things like that to fund the CAP rather than actually inc including a component in rates. But it sounds like you've you've kind of almost got like a roundup program or something like yeah. that. Okay. In terms of um, uh, you know, you mentioned the efficiency aspect uh, by having the low low income uh, plumbing retrofit program. Are there any other? Um, I mean retrofit programs or, or go, for example, trying to get rid of non-revenue water, what kind of programs do you have there to help bolster your supply 
and and further water affordability and equity? Sure. So, well, let me back up and, and just uh, kind of explain where our water comes from. Um, about 60% of the water that we deliver to residents here comes from uh, the local Salt and Verde River waters. Um, that's delivered through the Salt River Project Canal System, which I believe is the oldest Bureau of Reclamation project, um, if not the oldest, one of the oldest uh, in the country. And then a, a little less than 40% of our water comes from the Colorado River. Um, and then a very, very small amount of water uh, is groundwater. Um, and that's an important point. About 40 years ago, the city of Phoenix intentionally in, um, invested in um, surface water treatment plants so that we could use renewable surface water supplies and save our fossil groundwater supplies for the future. And that was a huge economic investment um, that the community undertook. As a result, um, we are one of the few places in the country where our aquifers are actually, you know, improving as opposed to declining. And, and that's incredibly important. The future of Phoenix, um, you know, Phoenix 100 years from now, really vests on our ability to protect those groundwater supplies today. Um, so that's been a huge effort. Um, but like I said, a, about 40% of our water comes from the Colorado River. And I think most people are aware of the, the dire problems on the Colorado River. Um, the Colorado River is, is over allocated. Um, the scientists are telling us that um, the entire Colorado River Basin is aridifying, uh, becoming hotter and drier, and that we can expect the flows of the river to diminish by about 25% over time. So um, it's a very stressed system. Uh, so we've really focused a lot of our energy on finding ways to ensure the resiliency of our Colorado River supply. Um, one of the things that we've done is we partnered with the city of Tucson, uh, which is about 100 miles to the south of us. Um, traditional rivals, right? Because they have the University <laughs> of the state so you know no end of jokes there um and but they uh we share a canal so there is uh, the central arizona project canal uh which delivers colorado river water into central arizona uh it travels all the way from western arizona uh, cuts through the valley of the sun here in phoenix and then continues on and terminates at the city of tucson so what we figured out is that um Currently, the city of Phoenix only uses about two-thirds of the Colorado River water that we're entitled to. And um, we, and while we are predominantly a surface water system, the city of Tucson is predominantly a groundwater system. So the city of Tucson takes their Colorado River water and they bank it underground, and then they use wells to pull it back out of their aquifer. So what we figured out is that the city of Phoenix could take its currently unused Colorado River allocation, and we could partner with the city of Tucson, um, recharge their aquifers today, and then enter into an exchange agreement. And the way that works is that in the future, when I'm going to need that water back, um, we will ask Tucson to pump the water we stored in their aquifer out of their wells, and they will direct uh, the Central Arizona Project to deliver their uh, Colorado River surface water to the city of Phoenix surface water treatment plants. 
So it's kind of, it's basically a way of leveraging infrastructure across the entire state. And it really, it provides benefits to the city of Tucson and future benefits to the city of Phoenix. So it's, it's a really cool partnership. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds very cool. Um, how long has that arrangement been in place? Uh, I believe about three years now. And we've managed to bank over 100,000 acre feet of water. Um, and you know what? I, I need to convert that because I know out in the <laughs> west, use acre feet. And then out east, people are like, what is an acre foot? Um, so that is, I'm doing the math for you right now. <laughs> and, and while Catherine's doing the math, that is an, an acre foot of water is the amount of water it takes to cover one acre of ground, one foot deep in water. Correct. And it's three, uh, 325,851 gallons. Wow. So uh, we are talking about 35 billion gallons that we've been able to bank so far in the city of Tucson aquifers, which is a, a nice number for the future. That's true. Can you, can you give us a little background on how that agreement even came about? Because it, that just seems like uh, the, you, you each could have been going along in, in uh, you know, providing water and all this. And if, if you don't talk to each other, you don't realize that these uh, opportunities and these synergies can, can present themselves. And that, that, that one in particular seems like it may have had some, some higher uh, uh, opportunity, not opportunity costs, some, some higher uh, transaction costs to, to actually reach agreement. And, and so it just seems like a fascinating agreement. I'm just, I'm just wondering how you got to the point where you signed, signed your names on the, on the dotted line. You know what? Um, I guess what I would say is that uh, because water is so uh, precious in the West, um, we are all really good horse traders, right? Like water managers out here are always looking to trade horses, figure out a new agreement, uh, buy this one, sell that one. We are really innovative. And we have a long tradition of regional planning, of working collaboratively together, um, particularly here in Arizona. So, um, you know, if you look back over the last 40 years in Arizona, we have amazing agreements between um, agricultural districts, cities, Indian communities, the mines, the state, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation. Our approach to water planning really is a very collaborative and regional one. Doesn't mean we don't fight sometimes, because we certainly do. Uh, we all know the old Mark Twain saying. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that perspective has guided us. And in this particular case, I mean, I don't know. I will just tell you, we were sitting around the table one day, and one of our water managers said, hey, what if we do this? And we all kind of said, yeah, that's a really good idea. And uh, the minute that uh, Phoenix and Tucson got together to talk about it, it was just I don't know. It was just crystal clear that this would be a really, really neat partnership. And we did have some obstacles. I will tell you there were some political obstacles. Um, but when you have a good idea and it's the right thing for your community, you find a way to make it work. Yeah. That's, that's the ultimate testament is that you were able to navigate those political um, obstacles because that, that seems to derail a lot of water issues. Um, yeah. the, the, the physics and the engineering can all work out, but the, uh, 
but the political issues sometimes sometimes cause more heart heartache or heartburn and roadblocks than than you than you'd like. Um, help now, and I'm I am kind of curious how long that what's the term of that agreement? The, basically, the term of the agreement is indefinite, right? So we've already stored our water there. We're going to continue to store as much water as we can in Tucson aquifers. Um, and they, you know, the agreement remains open and Tucson continues to have an obligation to us so long as we have water in their aquifers. So, um, it, so we expect it to last for decades. And, you know, fundamentally, if you think about it, it was a way for Phoenix to leverage another city's well field without having to build our own yet gain the same amount of redundancy that a well field buys you. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very innovative, very um, a fascinating, fascinating uh, arrangement you've got there. So, all right. So, so we you, you mentioned the political obstacles uh, that you had to overcome. Can you talk a little about the, the 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 politics and the political will it takes to overcome those obstacles? Yeah, I, I, thank you. And I will tell you that's something that I am concerned about in the water industry broadly across the country. Um, we have such a, a, an amazing foundation of um, broad access to water here in the U.S. Certainly we have our problems, um, but fundamentally a lot of those problems relate back to aging infrastructure. And for us to, to really push the ball down the field in terms of water equity, we really need to pay attention to replacing that aging infrastructure that is the foundation of our community water systems. And that takes political will. And that's really difficult. You have to ask our you know, political leaders, um, our elected officials to increase water rates. And that's an incredibly unpopular thing to do, right? No one wants to do it. I don't wanna ask it, but if we're going to have sound community water systems it's absolutely necessary. And so um, when I look to the future, I really think that we are all well served by continuing to um, educate our elected officials and our customers about the value that we bring to the community and the need to continue that investment. I think that's of utmost importance for our entire industry. Right, right. I, I, I'd agree with you. And in terms of of strategies to get those political leaders, because because they're pulled in lots of different directions, right? And so you you really need to make the case to them and get them to be a champion of of water infrastructure and water rates and things like that. How, do you have any strategies on how 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 you've been able to accomplish that? Well, you know, I I don't other than education <laughs> and, and really, you know, the thing is, if you lay out the facts. If you lay out the case, if you engage your community and make sure that you're getting um, a broad perspective from across you know, your entire city or, or community, I think the case can be made. It's, it's always gonna be difficult, um, but I, I think as long as you lay out the case well and engage your community, that at, at the end of the day, you can be successful. Yeah, how how has your Phoenix Waters uh, Citizens Advisory Committee played a, played a role in that? Oh, they they are my heroes. They are my <laughs> heroes. No, seriously. I mean, first of all, you have to find people who are willing to sit and listen to us bureaucrats 
you know, spew all sorts of numbers and PowerPoints for hours at a time. And, you know, right there, that's a challenge, right? Um, but we have this phenomenal group. It's a very diverse group in, in every way that you can imagine diversity. Um, they really represent the community quite broadly. And they are a very dedicated group. Um, they, uh, they're really key to our ability to successfully secure rate increases because we're able to work with them, answer their questions. They really scrutinize us, make sure that we are operating as efficiently as we can be. Um, but at the end of the day, they're able to stand in front of our city council when it's time to make those recommendations and say, yes, you know, we support this. And so um, it's, it's not only hugely important, we just wouldn't be successful without them. Right, right. I agree. You got to have that community buy-in. Uh, well, Catherine, we're quickly coming to the end of our time together. Uh, you've been absolutely fantastic. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and learning a little about Phoenix Water and especially the Tucson Phoenix Water Exchange. Uh, do you have a leave-behind message? I mean, what, what would you leave the listeners with? I think I would leave with your listeners uh, the importance of pushing for investment in the rehabilitation and replacement of our aging infrastructure across the country. Um, you know, we talk a lot about water equity. Um, we talk a lot about uh, future generations and climate change. If we don't make those investments now, um, then we fail um, at water equity in, in all of its meanings. Um, I would also say uh, just real quickly, just a huge shout out and thank you to not just my employees, uh, but employees of the water and wastewater sector across the country, they are the true heroes of the community. I know police and fire get all the attention, right? But when it comes to, you know, day-to-day -day life, safe, clean water, safe, reliable removal of wastewater, treatment of wastewater, these guys are out there putting it on the line every day, 24-7. And I think that's incredible. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely with you, Catherine. Um, if, and terrifically behind message, by the way, can we, uh, uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you, more about Phoenix Water, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, sure. So uh, folks can go to uh, phoenix.gov forward slash water. Uh, we are also on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. And, and uh, Phoenix Water, my, my um, millennial PIO is telling me. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, it's a Phoenix water. Um, we're on all the social media platforms and, and even some that haven't been invented yet. <laughs> terrific. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. You've been wonderful. Really appreciate it and have a terrific summer and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Well, what a terrific interview by Catherine. Phoenix water is so lucky to have her. And I thought she provided just a, a great interview. And I really found that, as I said, kind of at the top of the podcast, that the, the Phoenix Tucson water sharing arrangement was really interesting. You know, and I, I said this also at the top is that, uh, you know, lots of us talk about being innovative, thinking outside the box and things like that. Well, again, Phoenix and Tucson put it into practice and they, they, they implemented that innovation. So kudos to them. Well, let me know what you liked about this podcast. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter at 
thewatervalues.com. That should redirect you to the, uh, the, the site where we're hosted at Bluefield Research. Uh, and thank you again for tuning in. And a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, and Xylem. So thank you again to those great sponsors. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.